FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, welcome to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life, and more. And what a L'Chaim it promises to be. Last week, the focus was local here in Melbourne. So this week, we have another theme which I am quite sure will become self-evident. Kicking off with Murray's guest, Dr. Bren Khalil, Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia, with his new, very interesting book, which was launched last Sunday. So this is it. I'm with the show. You're tuned into Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Take it away, Murray Frankel. Dr. Bren Carlyle is the Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia. He previously served as a Middle East researcher in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Department of Home Affairs, as well as being an advisor in federal politics. He grew up in Darwin, lived in Israel for six years, and is now a resident in Melbourne. Bren is the author of the very recently published book, The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute, which is the focus of our discussion. Bren, welcome to L'Chaim. Thank you very much. Good to be here. At the core of your book is the concept of the territorial existential dichotomy through which you examine the nature of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute from the period prior to the creation of the State of Israel through to the situation today. Could you explain to our audience what you mean by the territorial existential dichotomy and how it helps explain why the Israeli-Palestinian dispute appears intractable. Sure. When I was looking at the dispute, I realized that some of Israel's enemies will never be satisfied until Israel is destroyed. And so like it or not, Israel is fighting an existential conflict with these people. But I also know that that's not true of all of Israel's enemies because there are many Palestinians who, you know, they're never going to be Zionists, but they will be satisfied with a Palestinian state alongside Israel. So what I realize is that some people are fighting to the death, if you like, and other people are fighting a conflict that might one day end up with a, a peaceful resolution. And so therefore I realize that there's actually two conflicts, at least two conflicts or two types of conflicts involved. And then I looked at the Israeli side and I saw that in Israel, there's also territorialists and existentialists as well. So when I sort of stumbled across this concept, I started looking at the history of the dispute. I was looking at the choices that the actors have made in the dispute. And I realized a lot of it is about perception. It's not so much that there are territorial and existential conflicts, but, but it's how the actors perceive. Because if you perceive that your enemy is fighting an existential conflict against you, then your actions against that enemy will be different than if you perceive that your enemy is fighting a territorial conflict against you because the ones fighting an existential conflict against you will never stop until you have been destroyed. And so there is no point ever compromising with them. There is no point entering peace negotiations with them because they will use that to their advantage in order to destroy you. Mm. Whereas if you perceive that your enemies are territorialists, then 
your actions with them will be different. So that's sort of start of the, the benefits of looking at the dispute through the prism of the dichotomy. You explore different time periods through this lens of the dichotomy, and there obviously isn't sufficient time here to look at the complete time span of the book. So perhaps you could summarise how you understand the period between the 67 and 73 wars in terms of the dichotomy, and so give the listeners a taste of what they can expect when they read the book. I find it's the most fascinating period in the entire history of the dispute. Basically, leading up to 67, Israel's enemies and really the Palestinians weren't a factor in Israel's strategic calculations at that stage. So Israel's enemies were the Arab states and they were fighting existential conflict against Israel. They wanted to destroy Israel. The 67 war started the process where those Arab states realized that they couldn't actually destroy Israel. Now, some of them started realizing that after 67, for some of them, it took the 1973 war to really realize that. But basically, after 1973, the Arab states basically gave up trying to destroy Israel. And over time, they became territorialists. They stopped fighting an existential conflict and they started fighting a territorial conflict. Now, that territorial conflict They didn't start it because they had this grand reconciliation with the concept of Jewish self-determination and they suddenly became Zionists. It's just because they grudgingly realized that, well, they can't destroy Israel. You might remember that after 1973, America started guaranteeing Israel's military superiority in, Mm. in the region. So they gave up. And over time, they grew to accept that Israel exists. And then, of course, in 2002, the Saudis produced its Arab Peace Initiative, I mean, I've got major problems with the initiative. It has a lot of flaws, but the point is they they suggested it. And then, of course, in more recent years, you've had the Abraham Accords, where particularly the UAE is not just grudgingly recognising the fact that Israel exists, but is embracing Israel through trade and tourism and investment and everything else. And so really, the process that began in 67 has really culminated now. So that's sort of on the grand scale of that side, but on the other side, on the Israeli side, it was really interesting as well, because Israel, the, the Labour Zionists, which which formed Israel's government in its first 20-odd years, were territorialists. They realised that their enemies were fighting an existential conflict, that they were territorialists. However, when Israel gained the biblical heartland in the 1967 war, then suddenly existentialists in Israel, who were motivated by religion, God gave us this land, you know, no one else has the right to it. They started conditioning their support for the Israeli government on Israel retaining that land. Mm-hmm. And over time, the influence of existentialists within Israeli society grew. And that's been a process that has been going on for some time. And really, as a result of the failed peace process in the 1990s, what you've got now, what you've had really for the last 20, 25 years is almost the entire time you've had peace-skeptic Israelis, Israelis who are territorialists but just no longer trust the Palestinians, combined with existentialist Israelis who never want a Palestinian state, and they have been able to form a majority, and hence you've had the Netanyahu government or or really peace-skeptic governments in power since 1996 with a handful of years without them. You examine alternatives to the two-state solution and a couple of models of the one-state solution to the dispute Would any of these provide an acceptable outcome for both parties? You know, of all the chapters in my book, the chapter about the one-state solution was far and away the the funnest to write because it's such a dumb idea. (laughs) Um, 
Look, there's also the idea of a federation, either with just with the Palestinians or including the Jordanians and the Palestinians and the Israelis. The one-state solution is particularly dumb and it will result in a, in a civil war within a handful of years. But all of the alternatives to a negotiated two-state outcome will all fail, in my opinion, unless the existentialists are completely undermined. Because you can resolve territorial conflicts. You can't resolve the conflicts with existentialists. You have to win those conflicts, or at the very least, manage them. And existentialists will always try and undermine peace processes. And so any alternative, any outcome, whether it's a negotiated two-state outcome or a one-state outcome or or a federation, if the existentialists still exist in Israeli and Palestinian society, and I mean, they'll always exist, but unless they are a tiny minority, then they will undermine any territorialist outcome. So the short answer is that no alternative will work unless the existentialists are managed. Do you see any way that this can happen? I mean, they seem on both sides incredibly powerful and influential. Yeah, they are. Um, and particularly on the Palestinian side, if you look at great research institution, the, uh, the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, and they produce quarterly polls of the Palestinians and it's fabulous, fabulous insight into Palestinian society and what Palestinians want. And every now and then they will produce a poll. They'll ask a question that really goes to the heart of whether Palestinians are territorialists and existentialists. An example being you know, if Israel were to grant Palestinians everything they demand, full Israeli withdrawals to the 49 lines, full right of return, you know, Jerusalem as capital, mm. everything that the Palestinians yeah. demand, would you consider that to be an end of conflict with Israel? And about half the Palestinians say no. Even if we got everything we wanted, even if we got the right of return, which, of course, for Zionists means, you know, the end of Israel as a Jewish state, yeah. they're still not satisfied and they still want to continue the conflict. So that shows that notwithstanding the difficulties of negotiation in and of itself, what that shows is at least half the Palestinians are existentialists. Now, not half of Israelis are existentialists. It's a much smaller number, but still a significant number of the population. Look, there's a great analogy from the Northern Irish conflict. Now, that is not an existential conflict because the Irish Republicans never wanted to destroy the United Kingdom. They just wanted Great Britain out of Northern Ireland. However, in 1998, there was the Good Friday Agreement in March 98. Later that year, I think it was August that year, there was a big bomb that went off in Omar, which is a town in Northern Ireland, killed 29 people, of which about half were Catholic and about half were Protestant. Now, that was perpetrated by the, the real IRA, which was a, a breakaway group from the provisional IRA. The, the, the provisional IRA had been the main group and they had called a ceasefire. The real IRA wanted to undermine the peace process. They wanted to, they wanted to bring the conflict back. And there was outrage, outrage by Catholics in Northern Ireland and outrage by Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was wall-to-wall outrage by these people that were trying to undermine the peace process. And within days, this so-called real IRA declared their own ceasefire, and that was that. And that was really the last big attempt to undermine the Northern Irish peace process. Now, in Israel, and of course, Israel and the Palestinian areas, when you've got individuals that whether on grand violent scales or smaller less violent scales when you've got people that try to undermine the chance of peace you don't get wall-to-wall societal outrage so that indicates that the existentialists still have too much influence in order for a peace process to be successful so i think we need to first of all build up the territorials on each side and we need to undermine the existentialists on each side and how that happens is obviously 
great difficulty, which is why the subtitle of my book is mm. An Impossible Peace. But it is possible, but I think it requires real determination on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, and also by, by, by the foreign community. And I know I'm a bit long-winded here, but no, a, difficulty, a difficulty that the Palestinians have, I think that the, the Fatah leadership with Mahmoud Abbas are territorialists. I think they're very grudgingly territorialists, um, but they're territorialists because they've given up on destroying Israel. But Palestinian society, as I said, at least half of them are not. And the, the leadership is too weak to try and tell Palestinians that they need to be territorialists. They're too weak to undermine Palestinian existentialists. And the fact that Palestinian territorialists, Fatah, are deeply corrupt and deeply hated. And as we've seen in the news, they keep on killing activists. They keep on arresting journalists. What they're doing is undermining their own legitimacy. In order for territorialist Palestinians to start promoting a peaceful message to their own side, then they need to have more legitimacy. They need to reduce their corruption. They need to reduce the dictatorial tendencies. And that's something that only they can do. Yes, the foreign community can prod them in that direction, but it's something that they need to do, I can't see that happening any time in the near future. So unfortunately, the, the short and, and midterm future is pretty bleak on the peace mm. You did mention the uh, Abraham Accords before. How do you see that influencing the Palestinian position? Well, I think it will hopefully lead more Palestinians to the grudging realisation that they should be territorialists because I think that they're seeing that the Arab world is leaving them behind. You know, for too long, the Arab world didn't have relations with Israel because of the Palestinians. But I think a, a newer pragmatic generation of Arab leadership are starting to realize that's holding their own countries back. And so they wanted to have relations with Israel for their own benefits. And of course, the fact that Iran is a common enemy for pretty much everyone in the Middle East yeah. is another reason why they have been willing to sidestep the Palestinians and forge relations with Israel. I think if I was a Palestinian leader, I would look around the region and say, look, Arab solidarity is not working anymore. We are at risk of being left further behind. And so really, we need to get on the normalization train. Unfortunately, pragmatism hasn't been the Palestinian strong suit over the decades. But, you know, I hope it, I hope it kicks in. Well, we can only hope, as you said before, that uh, it is fairly bleak, the outlook. Dr. Bren Carlyle, Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia and author of The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute, thank you for providing us with a very interesting and thought-provoking analysis of this seemingly never-ending conflict. Bren's book is available online but uh, if you're interested, uh, you could also contact him at the ZFA. Thank you, Bryn. Very much appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music. Do you? Well, it goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing. Hallelujah! 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 Name 
Wow, how stunning and powerful was that? We've played Hallelujah previously on Lachaim, which was a beautiful duet performance from the talent show Hakochav Haba, The Next Star, which, like tonight, was also sung in English, Hebrew and Arabic. Tonight's Hallelujah is performed by many in support of the United Hatzalah of Israel's Coronavirus Emergency Response Fund, saving lives every day regardless of race, religion or language. You can donate at www.israelrescue.org forward slash saving lives. And by the way, check out the YouTube clip. As you should, Maury's guest Bren Khalil's new book, The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute. My opinion, the existentialists still far outnumber and have more corrupt power than the territorialists. We are all going to need to strap ourselves in for the ongoing roller coaster ride. I am quite sure our listeners worked out the theme of tonight's Lachaim with 
Now, a reminder, our guest last week was Judy Fagland, founder and president of Mitzvah Day Australia. Mitzvah Day is happening this Sunday, November 21st. So please give thought to getting involved for a few hours and check out the Mitzvah Day website, www.mitzvahday.org.au or the Mitzvah Day Facebook page to see what projects you can join and participate in some community activity and fun making a difference. This is hot off the press. Well, actually, Facebook yesterday. The JNF Australia are thrilled to announce that registrations are open for their mission to Israel next year. To be first to find out more information, register your interest at www.jnf.org.au forward slash mission 2022. Visit Israel with the JNF October 21st to November 1st, 2022. The Australian Jewish Association's guest tonight, immediately preceding Lachaim, was Lauren Isaacs, National Director of Harut Canada. She's a popular speaker in Canada and in Israel, and tonight was her first address to an Australian audience. Lauren was recently arrested on Hahabay at Temple Mount for the crime of displaying the flag of Israel. I'll be checking out the YouTube recording when it gets posted tomorrow. The AJA's guest next week is American author Michael Myerson with his book, Are Jews Really Not Good at Sport? All the information is on the AJA's Facebook page. Check it out. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Lachaim podcasts are also available at JWire, Digital Jewish News Daily for Australia and New Zealand. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lechaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lechaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel and Jeff Deegan. So thank you for tuning in and please join us again next week on L'Chaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai and peace.